Praise the Lord. Thank you, team. You know, I was sharing with our team a few weeks ago. Perhaps I have not seen this level of discouragement among God's people. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about generally speaking, among God's people. I've never seen this level of discouragement. And I know there's a lot to be discouraged about. I know that. I don't gloss over things. I even get discouraged occasionally. But thankfully, the Lord does not let me stay discouraged for too long. The reason is because continuous discouragement can sap your energy. Continuous discouragement uh, causes loss of hope. Continuous discouragement, uh, if persisted, can be very destructive. In fact, continuous discouragement uh, even can lead to all sorts of illnesses. And that is why I'm starting this short series during this month from the Psalms entitled, Encouraging Words in Discouraging Times. Perhaps other than Job or the Apostle Paul who really suffered physically, no one suffered from discouragement like David. I'm not saying he suffered physically, but I'm talking about suffering discouragement. Uh, started as a shepherd boy out in the hills of Bethlehem in the fields. He felt lonely at times, all alone, shepherding his father's flock. What with living in the shadow of his older brothers who appeared from what we know, the experience that Prophet Samuel had in the house of Jesse, you know, they obviously were uh, successful and tall and, and, and really handsome and all that stuff. Uh, but precisely, those lonely times in the hills helped him develop some of the most profound God-honoring prayers in a form of psalms. Now, I'm sure at times probably David wondered, even after he became king, what natural skills or talents that, he, that would equip him to lead the nation. I'm sure at times he, he wondered what administrative or, or leadership skills that really can he demonstrate uh, sitting on those hills in Bethlehem, near Bethlehem, watching his father's flock. But when you read his story in the Scripture, it is very clear that even his father and his brothers did not see him as a leadership material. In fact, when, when, when Prophet Samuel came to the house of Jesse and he was anointed king, he said, God told me there's going to be a king. They put all of the boys up there, and, and, and they left him out altogether. And, and Samuel said, well, this, is there anybody else? Because the Lord hasn't told me that any of these people are going to be kings. He said, well, you know, the, the runt. But he's out there shepherding the flock. That's always the, lowest, the job of the lowest in the family. <laughs> Shepherd the flock. And Samuel said, we're not going to even sit down until he comes. But you see, I want the young boys and young girls to listen to me here. While his family did not see much of, of him, did not make much of him, God 
saw in that boy the making of a king. Can I get an amen? amen? He saw the making of a king. God sees in you, young men, young women, he sees in you what you cannot see, what others cannot see. You know, perhaps the most important quality that David, that God has seen in young David is his prayfulness. The one thing that God saw nobody could see is his prayfulness. He was skilled in, play, skilled in playing musical instruments and composing songs and prayer psalms of praise. And God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint him king at a very young age. Little did David know that he would become one of the most significant figures in all of biblical history. But here's the irony. Listen carefully. Here's the irony. David did not cease from experiencing discouragement. As a young man, all alone in the hills, he experienced discouragement. Later on, he becomes king, he experienced discouragement. Started with running for his life from Saul who was hunting him and, and, and want to kill him. Then the sooner he became king, things in his family began to go south. Things really, he began to experience disaster after disaster within his own family, from murder to rape to the rest of it. So much so that though a powerful king, he had to flee his palace from his own son Absalom. Listen to me, please. At this time in David's life, running away from the palace because there was a coup d'etat taking place, at this, at this moment, when he feels that his family is torn, his kingdom is torn, his emotions were torn, his life was torn, and in the middle of this devastation and running away from his own palace, from his own home, he sits down and he writes Psalm 28. Psalm 28. Turn to it with me, please. In the pew Bible, if you don't have yours, please bring God's book to God's house next time if you don't have it with you. Page eight, 865 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 28. To you I call, O Lord, my rock. Don't turn a deaf ear. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. As I lift up my hands toward the most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who do evil. Like those who speak cordially to their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. 
Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. Since they show no regard to the work of the Lord and what his hand has done, he will tear them down and never build them back up. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in a song. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Lord, I can't do better praying than in these words. And all of God's people said amen. Amen. David wrote a number of psalms like this one. In fact, I remember preaching through the years similar psalms and very similar Psalms like 28, and in fact, so much so that Spurgeon called them songs of the night. David, not the perfect by any stretch of imagination. You know the story. He was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, yet he endured betrayal and disgrace and hatred. Question. What do you do when you are discouraged? What do you do when you are discouraged? What do you do when you unjustly suffer? What do you do when you are slandered and misunderstood by others? What do you do? You plead your case with God, just as David did. In fact, most of you know the story in Luke 18. You're very familiar to all of you, I'm sure, where Jesus tells the story of that poor widow who basically needed justice from a corrupt judge. (laughs) Think about that. And yet she kept on persisting. She knew he's corrupt. She knew he probably needed, wants to have a bribe, but she didn't have any money to give him. And she persisted until The judge did the right thing by her. And Jesus explains that while God the Father is the very opposite of that corrupt judge, while God the Father is all just and justice, he's all fair, he's all compassionate, while God the Father will always do the right things by his children. And yet he gives us this illustration to tell us that we too must persist in prayer. Can I get an amen? Amen. And never give up. Never give up. I think somebody wrote a book with that title. (laughs) Never give up. So let's look at this psalm, Psalm 28, under three headings. And I know they will have them on the screen if you're taking notice. First of all, you see David places his confident request before the Lord, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, 
David calmly presents a well-reasoned argument before the Lord, verses 3 to 5. Thirdly, David receives a cause for rejoicing from the Lord, verses 6 to 9. Let's look at them very, very quickly. The first thing you see here is David places his confident request before the Lord. Where does his confidence come from? From all of the things he did for God? From many times he said, I kept your commandments, and, I, and, and he would rejoice over the commandments of God and laws of God, they're perfect, and so on and so forth. No, David's confidence not based on his rightness or even the rightness of his cause. Listen to me. I know that sometimes you know you're right, and you're absolutely certain you're right. You're absolutely certain about the rightness of your cause for which you're praying, but that is not the source of your confidence. It ought not be. His confidence is in who? In God. He said, to you, O Lord, I call. You are my rock. That's who God is. Question. Why is God called the rock? Those of you who are here, I shared a little bit of that when I was talking about Hannah because she said the same thing. Because the rock is a symbol of changelessness. Even when our world is falling apart, the rock is a symbol of immovability. The rock is a symbol of permanence. The rock is a symbol of invincibility. The rock is a symbol of immutability. Can I get an amen? amen. No one should call themselves the rock. Not even a two-bit wrestler. <laughs> yeah. Well, he might call himself the rock, but one day he will get clobbered by a stronger acting wrestler. And his title that he bestowed on himself would mean nothing. <laughs> Only God can be called the rock. Only God could be called what? The rock. Only God could be called what? The rock. Good, I want you to keep that word because I'm going to get you to repeat it. A rock star can become a has-been overnight, but not the rock of ages. Please don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this, because this is really important, because there is an amazing contrast here. And if, and if you miss it, I mean, you miss the whole point. David's world is falling apart, but not the rock. David's world was slipping from under him, but not the rock. David's kingdom was slipping from under him. But God still is what? David's kingdom being snatched away from him by Absalom. But God is what? God, David's palace was snatched away from him by Absalom and his men. But God is what? David's security was melting before his own eyes as he was running away. But God is what? Now, David's subjects even turned on him and turned against him, but God is what? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been there? I've been there. 
Some of you, some of you watching around the world, you might be going through that experience right now. You feel your world is falling apart. You feel that your world is shaken. You feel that your world is slipping from under you. You feel that your world is sliding into oblivion. You feel that the foundation is shaking so much, you don't know how far and how long can you hold on. And you feel that your marriage is on the rocks, or you feel that your health is failing you. Then do what David did. Do what David did. Call upon the rock. Call upon the rock. For he is the only one who's unchangeable. He's the only one whose love is changeless. He's the only one whose stability is unquestionable. Let me ask another question. When your world appears to be falling apart, do you cry to God or do you blame God? Hello? Oh, listen, I've been around long enough. When you, when you are betrayed by somebody maybe near and dear to you, do you turn to the rock of ages or do you become angry with God? When you find yourself in trouble because of wrong choices that you have made, do you cry to the rock of ages or do you blame God for not protecting you from the consequences of your own choices. I remember a guy was counseling with me years ago, and he said, well, God should have stopped me. <laughs> David's confident request stemmed from knowing who God is, who God is. Not like so many in our culture today, sadly. They think that God owes them something. Even some people don't believe in God. They say, oh, God, you know how they put it in the media? The universe owes me something. Who's the universe? Never heard of him. I don't have to tell you that in this entitlement culture, millions of people feel that the government owes them something, that their parents owe them something, that the church owes them something. And in the midst... Oh, 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 this evil invasion that is taking place in our culture, that some Christians feel that God owes them big time. Listen to me. Listen to me. Are you listening? Say amen. amen. When it comes to God, He owes us nothing, and we owe Him everything. Please listen. People with that type of entitlement mentality they accomplish nothing. In fact, they destroy everything they touch. And David said, hear my cry, O Lord. For what? I've been good to you. I've been faithful to you. Because you owe me. No. Hear my cry for your mercy. Listen, David... Reasoning is this. If God is hearing him, he was sure God is hearing him, but, 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 but his reasoning, and you see it through the text when you read it carefully. That if God is hearing him, 
but not having mercy on him, <laughs> he, felt, he felt that he was a dead man walking. You know, I tell you, it's not a secret. It's my daily cry to the Lord. Daily. In the early hours of every morning, I said, Lord, without your mercy and grace, I'm dead in the water. I said, Lord, I have no right to ask for anything except your invitation to come and ask for mercy. Based on that invitation, I come. The only confidence I have is in your promise of mercy for those who ask for it. The only claim I have is your promise of mercy. I think it's easy to deduct that David pinned those words what he was experiencing, what so many of us sometimes experience, the silence of God. He was experiencing the silence of God. I have a sermon, actually, on the five times when God is silent, many years ago, I can't remember when. The silence of God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Have you experienced the silence of God? And you wonder what's going on. David, so he raises his hand toward the holy place. That is symbolic of the presence of God. Raising of the hand is an expression of imploring God. When Moses raised his hand up on the mountain, God gave victory to Joshua. When Jacob wrestled with God, raised his hand before God, he got the victory. When Jesus was sweating blood in Gethsemane, the resurrection took place three days later. I know this is not only my testimony, the testimony of many here in this place. I know that. David placed his confident request before the Lord. Secondly, he presents calmly his well-reasoned case to the Lord. Look at verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. Here David is talking about the wicked people. And he's, he says this. He said, they kind of smile to your face, but then they stab you in the back. It's a use of translation, but that's really what he meant. And he asked God to judge them. Repay them for their evil deeds. Those words might sound harsh in our soft, non-judgmental, tolerant culture. Oh, it's judgmental. Huh. Have you noticed that the very people who were yesterday pleading for tolerance. Today, they're the same very people who are promoting violence and intolerance. I don't want to get into that hobby horse, okay? <laughs> but, but please listen to me. I am absolutely convinced that Satan has unleashed a successful propaganda campaign 
that has corrupted the thinking of a whole generation. A whole generation. That's why I'm thankful to God for the young generation in this church who are faithful to the Lord and to the Word of God. In our media, in our government, in our schools, even the political leaders, they're all now preaching the kind of moral insanity. Some well meaning church people. I didn't say believers, I said church people. They're saying, oh, we must not judge any sin. Yeah, except the sin of being morally upright. Hello. Am I preaching the truth? Or the sin of being a pro-life Christian. That's a sin. Oh, they don't want to blame the criminals for their life of crime. They don't want to condemn the terrorists for taking lives. They say to us, oh, these terrorists and these criminals, they don't need to be judged. They need to be understood. Ah. <laughs> People on Radio Land wondering what I'm doing. <laughs> Meanwhile, the authorities are placing spies in the churches in America. Now, I grew up with this. I grew up with this. The first 18 years of my life were plainclothes police, secret police are in the churches listening to what the preachers say in case they preach against the regime. And if they're listening and, and the preacher says anything against the government, against the regime, often they disappear. But this is America. Here we are. In contrast, David said, Lord, repay them for what their hands have done. Our culture probably would say, he shouldn't be so judgmental toward those people who are hunting him down. People are trying to destroy him. He shouldn't be judgmental. He should be more understanding. He should be more tolerant. Some of you may remember this, not more than years ago, but 2017. It was March 22nd. In Manchester, England, there was a concert by an American singer where a local group of Muslim terrorists detonated in that arena a homemade bomb and it killed 22 people and maimed 250 others. After this horrific attack, I can never forget that. I can never forget that. I can't get that out of my head. Elementary school students were told not to judge the terrorists. Try to understand their motives. Children were told to write a letter to the terrorists and ask six questions to help the children better understand the terrorists, not judge them. Listen to me. <laughs> Please listen. If you cannot see the devil's fingerprints 
in Western civilization that was based on the Reformation, on, on, on the Bible, on the Word of God, when the Reformers took, it, took us back to it, if you cannot see his fingerprint not only trying to destroy Western civilization, but to impact the church of Jesus Christ, you need to get some spiritual binoculars. Rabbi Jeffrey Salen of Hollywood, Florida, spoke with utter sadness of his heart to what he sees as young Jewish people who succumb to this moral madness of non-judgmentalism. He said, I've heard Jewish young people tell me, we have no right to judge the Nazis because they thought that what they were doing was right. Our beloved, the Bible from cover to cover tells us that we must call wrong, wrong, evil, evil, sin, sin, wickedness, wickedness. Listen, whether that sin is in our lives and lives of others, I, I condemn the sin in my life faster than I condemn any other person. But the beauty of David's claim, this calm reasoning with the Lord is this. It's not based on self-righteousness, not even the rightness of his cause, but it was based on the character of God. Are you with me? Yes. The character of God. In fact, David already approached God, and you see that in the beginning, with confession. He, he, he says, protect me from falling in these sins. He, he, he confesses his sinfulness. So he doesn't begin the prayer with asking God to judge the wicked. No, no. He begins by asking God to keep him from being dragged into these wicked schemes. I often use the words of John Wesley Whenever I hear of a preacher falling or this happening, <clears throat> preacher turning away from the faith, I often say the word, in the words of John Wesley, but for the grace of God, there go I. David was always aware of his own propensity, propensity to sin. Now, if you're not aware of that, you need to do some work with God today. I, as your pastor, I'm aware of my propensity to sin. That's why David begins with confession. Now, please don't miss this. Don't miss this, okay? I plead with you. Don't miss this. When David was praying for justice against the wicked, he was not just praying as a private citizen. Uh, he was praying as the ruler of his people. He was praying uh, and, uh, and assuming his rightful place as the ruler, as the leader of the nation. And as the ruler, he is responsible for executing justice, not mercy. Justice not mercy. Mercy is what you and I exercise, but the government is called to exercise justice. 
Over 10 years ago, I can't remember, 12 years ago, when I was called to jury duty. And then finally I got to the final thing and the judge was asking me all sorts of questions. Do you have friends in the police? Do you live, you know, and, and so I said, look, let me tell you something. Everything I say is in writing. <laughs> you and all of those who sit in those benches are not to exercise mercy. You need to exercise justice. That is what God calls a government to do. I have never been called to jury duty again. <laughs> I can see her writing something. <laughs> Whatever it was, I never got another summon. But David, I mean, even Romans 13 that people always rush to, Romans 13 is the government supposed to exercise justice. Please don't misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. Don't, don't mis I understand that these things, because people have all kinds of views, and I don't care about views. I only care what the Scripture says, right? Evil must never prosper regardless of how we feel about the perpetrator of that evil. Did you get that? Do you want me to repeat it? Okay, I will. <laughs> I will. I will read it so I don't mess it up. Evil must never prosper regardless of how we feel about the perpetrator of that evil. We must pray to God to frustrate the evil designs, the evil's plan. I know there's some people, you know, buying Satan and all that stuff, but listen, even in the book of Jude, the archangel Michael said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Always ask the Lord to do it. He's the only one who can. Sadly, today in our culture, as we drift away from our biblical moorings, as we drift away from our godly moorings, under the guise of compassion and tolerance, we let the criminals roam in the streets and care nothing for the true victims. We want to protect the civil rights of the wicked more than those who suffered from their wickedness. We care more about the rights of a child abuser than the abused children. That causes me to weep. It should cause us all to weep. Cry upon God to do something. Cry to God to do something. Beloved, evil is evil, and wrong is wrong, and we need to pray that God will raise up godly leaders who would administer justice. <laughs> Confidently requesting, calmly reasoning, cause for rejoicing. Look at verses 6 all the way to 9. You know, as I was writing last Tuesday, I was writing these words, I thought, I, I, I'm, and I'm the one who's confessing, but I think it applies to all of us. I think we're all very good at requesting. <laughs> Hello? Come on. 
We are all very good at requesting. We may even be good at reasoning, but very few of us, very few of us are thankful when the prayers are answered. We don't stop long enough to thank Him. Soon our exuberant emotion fades, and as time passes, well, yeah, but what did He do for me lately? Our gratitude diminishes as our memory (laughs) grows fuzzy. I think all of us are familiar with the passage in Luke Luke 17 when uh, 10 lepers, 10, wanted to be healed, crying to Jesus, and he heals all 10 of them. Nine were Jewish. Nine, nine, I'm sorry, flunked math. Nine were Jewish, the sons of the covenant. One was a Gentile, Samaritan. And only the Samaritan came back with the same intensity by which he was asking, he was thanking. With the same intensity, with the same passion that he wanted to be healed, he came back to give thanks. And Jesus asked, and you can see the pain in his voice, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? Weren't they ten altogether? Are they not as grateful and thankful as this Samaritan? Well, probably they felt the world owed them something. (laughs) But not David. Not David. Actually, he began praising and thanking God before he could see evidence to his answered prayers. Don't miss this. This is the last part of the, ver- of, the, of, of the psalm. I can tell you, truthfully, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, I prayed for something for six years. Six years for an impatient guy that can only be the work of God in me. <laughs> I would have given up long ago, but I prayed for six years. Nothing. I heard Nothing. Not even a sign, you know, when, that, when, when, when Elijah, it was in my morning prayer this morning, a, a read Bible reading, you know, he kept sending his servant to look in the sky, and he came back and said, well, there's a handful he said, of, of a cloud, and he said, great, hand umbrellas by faith, at least we see a little bit. I had nothing. There was nothing. I examined my heart. I examined my motives. I ensured that my prayer is consistent with the Word of God. I ensured that my prayer was consistent with the will of God as I knew it. Why was my prayer not being answered? Then finally, the Lord laid something on my heart. Why not thank Him now before the prayers are answered? Why don't you thank him for answered prayer before you see the evidence? Why wait until God answers? Why not exercise faith at the front end? Hello? It's easy to exercise faith at the back end when God does it. Why exercise faith at the front end? 
So I began to thank God for answered prayers. But be careful. Listen to the rest of this. And that prayer of thanksgiving for answered prayers went on for 18 months. 18 months. <laughs> That's what I, I remember those things. <laughs> As my wife said, do you forget anything? Unfortunately not. 18 months without a hint or a sign that my prayers are about to be answered. Oh, they were difficult 18 months. They were more difficult than the six, months, six years prior. The devil taunted me. How can you thank God for something hasn't even done yet? How can you thank God for answered prayer when you haven't seen any answers? Michael, you're losing your grip on reality. But when my prayers finally were answered, when Satan proved to be a liar yet again, I praise God for enabling me to persevere, thanking him in faith. And that's why I'm testifying today, those many years later. I testify all the time, and I'm testifying again. Look at verses 6 and 7, Psalm 28. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helped me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Don't miss David's fully trusting in God no matter what. Fully trusting in God before the prayers were answered. Fully trusting. It's like the liberals who say, the theologians say, well, he wrote that first part. Then he, when God answered his prayer, he wrote the second part. And imagine that. They don't want to believe that the man was walking by faith. Everything to them is just secular. They deny the supernatural altogether. Beloved, listen to me, please. The life that we're living right now, the, the, the life you're living today, wherever you are in your circumstances today, we live it because of what God did for us yesterday. And we will be in a different place tomorrow because of what God is doing for us today. You know why I'm saying this? I'm saying this because God is not trapped in time dimensions as we are. And when he looks down, he sees the past, the present, and the future all in front of him. All of them accomplished. And that is why, like David, we need to fully trust him, even in the times of what appears to us to be his silence. His silence. Look at verse 7. My heart trusts, that's in the past. I am helped, that's the present. I will praise him, it's in the future. Hear me right, please. I'm coming toward the end, so don't let me lose you, okay? Just, just get back. Based on his own experience with God, David, based on his knowledge of the character of God, not only in his own life, but in the lives of 
Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Isaac, as he knew the Word of God. Based on all of that, David's supplication turns into seeing God acting by faith. Can I get an amen? Listen, I I, I don't give you personal advice very often. (laughs) I only tell you what what God says, thus says the Lord, but I want to tell you something. My personal experience, and I know it's the experience of many of you, but I still take responsibility for it, not blame anybody else. Take it from this broken preacher. Next March will be 60 years since I've been walking with the Lord. I've been preaching for 50, almost 52 years. After all these years that I've been walking with the Lord, I can tell you with absolute conviction and certainty that the life of gratitude, the life of thankfulness is the secret to everything. Can I get an amen? amen. I'm telling you, trust, just, uh, you can ask others. I know that's the same. I, I am absolutely convinced now as I'm standing before you that gratitude and thanksgiving, and I'm talking about a, a, a lifestyle of it, not just occasionally say thank you, God. No, 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 I'm talking about a lifestyle of it. It's the secret to joy. It's the secret to life of faith. It's a secret to God's blessings. I know this is a sweeping statement. I know that. But please, let me appeal to you to try it. Try it. Please try it. Practice it. Live it. You will never be the same. You will never be the You will be amazed. I couldn't help but think of something that I read many, 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 many years ago, but particularly if you're projected in the light of modern-day royal family in England where the sense of entitlement, I mean, when I see that, I know I don't watch the news, but I, if I see it on my, in, my, in the news on my, the five, ten minutes I spend watching the news on my, my phone, I, I, I click it out. It, it's just so, so disgusting, their attitude of entitlement. It, it, it just, and I, I cannot help but contrast that with something I read many years ago about Queen Victoria, the ancestor of this family. On her 50th anniversary on the throne, it was 1887. Just think about how long it took people to, to come by boats and ships from all over the world. And they came from every state. They're kings. They were rulers. They were uh, presidents. And people came from the commonwealth because she is, after all, the emperor of the, of the commonwealth. They brought her gifts, expensive gifts, and none of it impacted her. The only gift she asked for is for the head of the Madagascar delegation to sing her favorite song during the celebration. What was the Queens of England favorite song? Song that caused her 
to weep when she hears it every time. What was that song that evoked tears from the Queen of England? It was the words of Augustus Stoplery, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in you. And the actually top lady was a sickly man and suffered a great deal. But he heard a sermon from Psalm 28. God is our rock. Inspired him when he was hiding from a storm to write those words. Beloved, don't ever forget, don't ever forget, don't ever forget. Even when our world falls apart, the rock will not. He will always have the last words. He will always have what? Oh, good grief. Did I send you to sleep? He will always have what? Father God, as the old English prayer says, let what we heard with our outward ear be penetrating deep into the cortex of our brains and our hearts and our lives and our, that we would not be shaken, that we will not be moved. And Father, if somebody is listening to me somewhere, whether here or around the world, who have never placed their faith and trust in the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that day be their spiritual birthday. Grant them saving faith. For you alone can do that. And all of God's people said amen. amen. Thanks, Jeremy.